So, muchas gracias. Um, let's start with Maria. Where and when were you born? What month, what year, where? Okay, so I was born on the 8th of September, 1994, in Montevideo, Uruguay. Um, I have one brother called Lucas. He's four years younger than me. And I also, like, consider important to say that I have two cousins because they are like my sisters. Um, and one of them is five years different from me. And the other one is two years younger. And we lived all together. I mean, we all were born in Montevideo, but we moved since I was five years old to a small town in the province of Maldonado. That town is called San Carlos. And we lived there for 12 years, so it's like the place I grew up in, more or less. You know, what's interesting to me is I, I finished recently a book on young women and girls leading the climate movement. Two-thirds of them were firstborn like you. So that, that's mm -hmm. an interesting pattern. Um, Astrid, the same question, where and when? Okay, uh, sorry for my sore throat teaching. Um, uh, my name is Astrid Rios. I'm 25, 26 years old. I'm not used to being 26. Um, I was born on April 19, 1995 uh, in Montevideo, Uruguay, but I always lived in Barros Blancos, Canelones, that is like a small town that has nothing but people, a lot of people. And now I'm living in Empalme Olmos, that is close by, but I'm still working at eh, Barros Blancos High School. And that's basically it. I didn't move, move much. And my family are, is my parents and my brother that is younger than me, six years younger. So you're another one of our firstborns. Yes. So interesting. Me too. Mm. This is. We'll have to really think about this. Um, so, uh, Maria, you're a Virgo. They those that constellation like service. They're kind. Sometimes talkative, um, sensitive. Do any of those qualities apply to you? I think yes. <laughs> I'm not sure. Maybe Astrid can tell you. <laughs> she knows me. <laughs> yes. I don't know. Should I you? think yes. Um, yeah. I'm very structured. I think that is one of my my main characteristics as a Virgo. And I'm yes, too bossy. I think. Um, and Astrid, you're a. Um an Aries, the ram or the lamb, strong-willed, energetic, does that apply to you? Yes. I love taking naps, but I feel like once I'm up, I am, I'm energetic. And yes, I have a strong will and character. And I don't I feel like I'm impulsive. That's something that they say. It's not like I don't necessarily like ponder much. Uh, on what I do, but I, but I feel like I'm sure of the decisions that I make. It's not like I regret them later, but yeah. So you, so you, you think things through. Yeah, got it. Um, Maria, what about your education, career path? What, what have you studied in university, school? 
Um, okay, so I uh, my first years I studied in this town I mentioned before in San Carlos. Um, I studied in different schools and high schools. I moved through many, 13 to be precise. Um, yeah, because of, because of many issues I, I, I had uh, while building strong relationships, uh, I suffered bullying, like through all my childhood. And I was never comfortable in the place I was studying in, so I moved a lot from place to place. And uh, when I was 18, um, I started studying at CERP del Sur, Centro Regional de Profesores. That, that's where the place I met Astrid, and I started studying to become a, an English teacher. <laughs> And Gabriela as well, Gabriela Ione as well, she was my teacher. And um, <clears throat> I'm sorry, but I took some notes because I wanted to answer the questions like properly. So uh, in this particular question, it's like I felt really influenced by my mother. She was an English teacher. Uh, she's not currently working on that. Um, but there's these questions make me think a lot, like, about how things actually happened. I'm not sure till what point I really wanted to be a an English teacher or that was what I had to do because my mother always told me I was going to be that. <laughs> um, I know for sure now that I love my profession, I, I love teaching English, but I don't know when I decided I was going to be that. Um, so I studied for, okay, the career was four years, but it took me some more, probably seven years long. And I continued studying at IPA later here in Montevideo. I moved, I continued studying in Montevideo. And, um, okay, that's what I did. That's, I graduated in last October. And uh, I'd like to keep on studying something connected to English literature. That's, that would be great for me. It's hard to study that here in Uruguay because we don't have nothing about English literate, literature or culture or history, nothing connected to that. But okay, in Argentina, there are some places. And I don't know, um, that's it, <laughs> I think. Um, and are you teaching now? Are you working as a teacher? Yes, I work uh, this year. I'm working in three uh, different places. I work at a private uh, a private institute that is a Jewish institute. But then I also work at another private institute, but it's a Catholic one. And I work for a state high school. And could you say a word about bullying? Because that's an important issue for people around the world. Were you bullied by peers at school or in social media? Or what was the venue? Yes, uh, by peers at school, mostly. And um, do you know why they picked you as a target? Yes, because I was fat. <laughs> I am, <laughs> but I used to be a fat girl. And that was mainly the cause of, of that bullying um, I suffered from. Um, although now I realize that it was more than just my peers 
some adults in a way also um, helped or promoted that bullying as well. Uh, it was mostly my peers. I had many problems while making friends. I couldn't like create that that bond with with my age people, with people of my age. So yeah, basically that. And when you when you have students who are bullied now, what? How do you intervene to help them? Because you know what it's like, how painful it is. Yes. Okay. It's like in my classes, I I, I can't allow bullying. I can't. It's just like uh, any kind of of bullying, and. In a way, I think it depends a lot on the teacher, on the role they are, like, they have in front of them. Because most of the times it never happens that I experience a situation or I see a situation in which they are involved into that. They are doing that, practicing bullying or something. It's like they know, because of the characteristics of their teacher, they are very intelligent. They really know when and where to say the things they say. Um, but in some cases, of course, in which I I, I saw some kind of, of improper situation, I talked to them. I think uh, that that's the way, talking, discussing, letting them know that's not right, how to manage that, how to make it better. Um, and of course, involving other peers as well. Not only them, because that's being something like public in a way, they are showing that to the class. So it's like we have like the person doing it and someone else like promoting that if they don't stop it. So yes, I, I <laughs> in Spanish we say no deja pasar una. <laughs> I it's like if it happens I stop it. <laughs> yeah. Can't continue. And what what do you tell them the 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 student who's being bullied about how to stop it? You know what what tools do you give them so they don't have to suffer? Okay, one is for example, try to put yourself in the position of the person who is feeling that who you are doing that to. Okay, would you like to be treated that way, or would you like to be treated that way because of any, I don't know, uh, aspect that you don't like about yourself. That's like trying to get uh, to, to go there through empathy, I think. Mm. Being empathetic, I think it's, it's the, best, the best tool. Um, I usually try to discuss and get to them through empath empathy. I don't say it, it always works <laughs> because we have different types of students and some are more like like they really listen to you and they understand what you say and some are just angry <laughs> with everything, towards everything, uh, but yeah. Mm. Yeah, sorry to interrupt, but at least in our country, in our culture, it's not that common to see like one student being targeted and like, it, that doesn't happen much. Like sometimes you, you hear a student that says something something rude or inconsiderate 
And that's when you stop and intervene and make them think about their actions. Mm-hmm. But like, I work in, in Barra Blancos and that is like a complicated context where, where kids lack a lot of things, mostly economic things and about family and stuff. And they bring a lot of anger and things. And still, it's not like, yes, they fight, and but this there's it's not like a personal thing with one student and we all as an institution tend to intervene like i know teachers that prefer not to because it's tiring it's stressful sometimes you don't know how to exactly manage it so it's easier to like make like you didn't see anything right uh, but as, as an institution we work all together to try to stop those those things uh, and yeah, like like that. Like as a culture, I don't think that we we have like I don't know if it's true, but we watch a lot of American films and TV shows, and it's like <laughs> the group of the underdogs, right? That is not something very common here. At least that's that that's in my experience. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, Astrid, how did you come to be an English teacher? What what was your career education path? Um, I, I think that I always felt like I loved school and that I, I wished that some of my teachers did things in a certain way. Like I, I, I felt like, oh, I could do this so much better. Or I wish that more teachers would work like two or three teachers that I met. And English was something that I really, that I always really liked my parents listen to a lot of uh, music in, in English and watch a lot of films. So it was some, something that I was always very interested in. And as a teenager, I started listening to High School Musical, the Jonas Brothers, and all of those things. And I started teaching, uh, learning English by myself and studying privately at that age. That was when my parents uh, could start to afford it. And because we grew up in an economical crisis in our country. So as kids, it was hard to uh, go to English lessons. Now it's easier to go. And yeah, I knew straight away, like in high school, that I wanted to be an English teacher. And at 17, I started serve. I met Betania, I met Dayone, and it took me four years. And I've been teaching since then. And now I'm just finishing a course to be a, a sex educator. That took me two years. And yes, I'm doing the practices and stuff. So I'm nearly done with that. And will you teach in high school or where will you be a, a sex ed teacher? Yeah, there, there's, sorry, my, my love died. It, there's a role in high school uh, that is called referente sexual, in which you're supposed to be like uh, there for the students if they want to come to you. But I think that the important thing is that you should provide like workshops and things um, in order to work. I don't know, not only about biological stuff. That is the thing that we first think about when we when we think about sex education, right? But things that have to do with bonding, with friendships, with our own bodies, uh, relationships. And kids have a lot of questions. And sometimes I see that 
people that are taking this role are just waiting for something to happen, but they don't go after the students like, hey, let's work on this topic, right? And sometimes students ask me, uh, because since we teach English, we teach like many different topics, right? For example, the other day, uh, there's this thematic unit that is called History Makers. We were talking about Freddie Mercury. They saw, they told me that they saw the movie. They started talking about AIDS. And they started asking me all these questions related to theft. And they, they, I felt happy because they, or honored because they felt like they could ask me. But I saw like the, the clear need that they have because they, they, even though they are young, because my students are like 13, 14, either they are already sexually active, that is something that we think, sometimes we think they are not, but, or, or they are close to someone that is, and they hear a lot of things and they have a lot of doubts. So that's why I want to be a sex, educate, a sex educator. I hope to be more active than my peers, than the ones that I see in my high school. Um, and yes, I, th I think sex education is, is so important. Right. What, how common is teen pregnancy? How much of that is a problem in Uruguay? Uh, it's much better. When we, when we were younger, it was much, much more common. Hmm. Now, in my high school, besides all the situation, apart from everything, we have like, I think that two years ago, we had one student I became pregnant, but since then we haven't had any cases. So uh, it's not as as much as a problem as it used to be. Mm, the same in mine. In my state, in the state high school I work in now, um, there's one student this year, and she's no longer attending classes. Hmm. Um, mm -hmm. I want to come back to teenagers, but. I'd like to hear what kind of messages you got growing up about what it means to be a good woman. What 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 should you aspire to? What are the qualities that you should that means you're a good woman? I I, I would change. Can I change the question? <laughs> no, but instead of. It's like uh, whenever I think of if I'm a good woman or not, it's like if I'm a good person or not, I, I consider myself a good person, a good human being. <laughs> um, I, I would change that, um, that like, that, that label. That be, yeah, that might be because in your case, your mom expected you and your brother to be both the same type of type of people, right? But sometimes that doesn't happen. Like, I don't know. In oh, my case, okay, yes, yes, go. On. No, go on if you want. Uh, no, that because now that you said this, uh, something came to my mind that I wanted to mention before and I didn't regarding my mom. But um, no, I just think that I try to be a good person. I try to be good towards others. I try to be intelligent because I like intelligence. I, I don't know if I am intelligent or not, but it's something I aspire to. And <laughs> and um, I try to follow, like, to, to make sure my actions and my thoughts are, like, in a way connected. 
okay, I try to do as I think and think as I do and follow that like idea. But so you didn't, on, uh, your parents didn't give different messages to you and your brother, things like they say to boys, big boys don't cry, you know, be tough, mm -hmm. don't be like a girl. Not like that, but yes, I, I realize now that I started like thinking upon this, that I received like a, a different kind of education. Uh, me and my two cousins, because we are, the three of us are girl, were girls, and uh, there were some things, I, first of all, I was raised by my mom and my aunt. I don't have a father, so there wasn't like this main figure at home. Um, <clears throat> but I realized that since we were like little girls, we started working on things, for example, I don't know, domestic activities like, I don't know, washing the dishes or uh, tidying up or making the beds or whatever. And uh, only the three of us did that. My brother, of course, he was like the youngest, but anyways, he was the boy, so he couldn't do something. And there I saw this difference. And I realized now that I talk to my cousins now, we're all adults, and they say, okay, yes, but I was only one year, young, uh, one year older than your brother, and I had to do this and this and this and this. And she's right. So there was this difference um, just because my brother was a boy. Mm -hmm. Yes, we had those differences. What those differences at home? He could go out and play, <laughs> and we had to stay cleaning, for example. Um, those kind of things that <clears throat> that okay are not correct. If I have a boy or a girl or whatever I have one day, I'm not going to do that. Definitely, as a mom. <laughs> Um, Astrid, what about you? What messages did you get? Uh, I'm stuck here because I think both both my parents, although like it, it were, they raised me pretty feminist in a very feminist way. My my dad uh, at one point he stayed at home with us. My mom worked. He cooked. My mom is messier than my dad. Like they define gender not even though they, they don't mean to. And my mom is, has a very strong character, and she always taught me to say what I think as long as it's with respect. And I think that's a very valuable lesson to teach girls, and that doesn't happen very often. And, yeah, I mean, I still see things from problematic things because she was raised in a patriarchal society, and she can't escape some things. Like, I don't know, it still happens. My brother is very skinny. And he can't even open, like, a bottle by himself. He needs help by everyone. He's 21. But if you need to change, if you need to do something that requires strength, my mom says, oh, we have a 21-year-old man. Let him do it, even though he can't. Like, instead of asking me, for example. Because he's, since he's the man of the family, right, besides my, my dad, he has to, uh, I don't know, cut the grass change the light bulb, do those kind of things that don't align at all with my brother <laughs> and that I can do, for example. Uh, those are the kind of things that I see. But I used to have, like, my grandma that took care of us for a while. She, she was very, very sexist. And she thought that my brother was better just because he was a boy. Like, when my grandma found out I was, I, I'm the firstborn, and I'm her first grandchild. 
in general, right? My parents dated for years, they got married, then I was born, like, they did everything right, let's say, according to society. But still, when my grandma found, found out that I was going to be a girl, she was very disappointed. <laughs> she started, like, yeah, uh, she started, like, showing up in my life. My grandpa showed up, and then she showed up more after my brother was born. And I suffered a lot when she had to t take care of us because both my parents were working. And she the, the difference was clear and still is. Like, my brother doesn't care for her as much because we don't like her much. <laughs> I mean, we love her, but we know that she's, she has those kind of attitudes. So my brother like, doesn't pay attention to her. And I'm like always trying to be, hey, grandma, I'm here for you. How are you? Like, and she still will prefer my brother. Like, doesn't <laughs> it doesn't matter what I do. And and I'm, I don't know. When I was 18, she told me that I was going to become like solterona. That means like I, I didn't have a boyfriend. <laughs> yeah, I didn't have a boyfriend. So I was 18 and I was studying like, and that's not something that she asked my brother, like, why don't you have a, a girlfriend, for example? And also the weight stuff, I I fought a lot with my grandma because she was always, like, criticizing me. Or She's one of those old people that likes to tell other women, like, how they look. Like, oh, you're so much better than you were um, a week ago. Like, here we have that, that culture with grown women that yeah. tend to... Uh, talk about other people's bodies and my my grandma always did that and now that I'm old my parents were like yeah I get you yeah that sucked but they never told her like you shouldn't tell her this right so now I'm the one that stands up for everyone and fights with my grandma <laughs> like no don't say that don't say that and that's something that I I put into practice now in my life because I think that many people sometimes they don't know the consequences of the things that they are saying right because maybe I could have developed like an eating disorder I don't know <laughs> and, and I, I also felt pressure regarding weight from my mom that is like always oh you look so much prettier because you're skinnier right uh, or or you should stop you should, you're, you're maybe like gaining too much weight. Even though, for example, my mom saw that I, my eating habits were pretty much the same and that I was never like skinny and that I was eating right and that, that my weight kind of, I don't know, went up a bit. She's someone that if she says, I, I don't know, I won't eat bread for a week, she loses a lot of weight. I can stop eating weight, uh, bread for a month and I will lose like one kilo, I don't know. Like my body's different. And if I like pay attention to her, I will be like wasting so much energy into something that doesn't define me at all. And so like, that's what I've been trying to do as an adult, to put my energy in other things, to accept myself and to, I don't know, rebel against that. I think that here in Uruguay, but phobia is huge and it's exhausting. Like, and, and the worst part is that you talk to any type of girl with any type of body and they all, all I mean, all, of course it's not the same, like 
actually being part that being like plump or I don't know, depends, right? Of course, the, the, the oppression is different. But like we all always feel like we are not skinny enough. We don't have like, a, I don't know, the butt that we should have, the breast that we should have. We are never there. And it's exhausting as women. Do you and that's something that by growing, when growing up, I, I, I was always like pushing aside, pushing aside. But sometimes I think that I didn't develop like an eating disorder because maybe my mom gave me these two things, like, like a, lot of a lot of complicated feelings about my body, but at the same time, she was like, you have to have a strong will, love yourself. So I cling <laughs> to that. Exactly, but I don't know contradictions. Um, people think that social media now, like Instagram, uh, makes it even worse for girls in terms of body image. Uh, do you think that's true in Uruguay as well? That people say, oh, look, she looks like this on Instagram, and uh, she went to that party and I wasn't invited. It, are people talking about social media and body image and anxiety and depression? Yes, definitely. Um, at least, I, I mean, I, I use Instagram a lot. It's the, I think Instagram and a little, a little bit of Facebook. It's like I can't quit it. <laughs> but uh, I don't use Twitter or any other. And I've seen that many adolescents nowadays, many, I, I'm not going to say just young female women, uh, women but just, uh, also boys nowadays, it's like very usual. They use um, all these um, methods, or I, I don't have the word now, when you change your image. Um, they edit, oh my edit, God. they put on filters. Yeah, but it's not editing, it needs filters. You use all these, they use all these filters in order to change or to modify or to make themselves better or more attractive or something. And... Uh, this is something I studied at the beginning of the year. I took a course that uh, that it goes around all these uh, digital uh, citizen we build and we have. And um, I've created a campaign for Instagram for my students. Yes, so they could stop using filters for a week. It was like a kind of challenge. And many students started using it. Um, but it's incredible. They said... We, we had some meetings with some students from different provinces here in Uruguay, and they say that uh, it's something they always do. And if they take a picture and they see that it, with filter and everything, or modifications of Photoshop or whatever, because some of them even use Photoshop, that is something that blows my mind, because it's so hard to use. But um, if they don't have, like, I don't know, five likes in an hour, they remove that picture and they post a different one or they try in a different time they say okay I, I never post at night and I'm like why <laughs> no because if you post in the morning you have more more time for people to appear okay great but it's it's like really impressive and I think that yes anxiety and depression is totally connected to this because they need acceptance that's we need acceptance okay that's what we use as at least Instagram, it's that. Showing pictures of things we like or, or, or ourselves or our family or friends. But it's always the good side or it is usually the good side of the life, of our lives, of the story that we share 
and we decide to share. Um, and we definitely do that for acceptance. Likes are like our motto. <laughs> and um, yes, maybe uh, depression. Now that it's uh, at least we have all these, uh, I think you do as well, but all these, um, it's like influencers are very trendy nowadays. Mm -hmm. So um, we have all these perfect influencers like they show you how to dress and how to look like and how to speak and uh, how to be the, the perfect stereotype of a woman of a boy of a, and it's like okay they are used to follow the, following that that's what they what they want to be what they as what they aspire to in a way and it's very dangerous right uh, Astrid in, in your low income high school do the students also have access to internet at home or they do everything on their cell phones? They still have phones and they have internet, yes. And also that, that I was thinking that this Instagram thing and these social networks is moved by consumerism. So you need to show that you have like nice clothes, you live in a nice place, that you can travel, that you can do this and that, right? And sometimes they, I, I'm sure they want to look a certain way and they can afford and that that puts a lot of pressure in them like mm -hmm. I, I think social media you require a lot of uh, you have to be like more in my case for example I don't I I don't know I love films and I love TV shows and I know almost every actor there is but I try not, not to follow any famous person because maybe that's a lot so I try to follow like I don't know some artists an activist, something that gives me like something that is not as superficial, right? That I'm learning, that I'm thinking about stuff. I I don't know, deactivated the thing that shows you how many likes posts have, for example, right? So I try to do those kind of things in order to be sane, right? Uh, but uh, our young our young people don't have those tools and parents give them the, their phones when they are like two they start like in a moment in which they don't want to listen to their kids they give them a phone like and they have no tools whatsoever and, and I think that's so dangerous and so sad so kids look up to influencers and they think that's the perfect life and that's the way to be and they don't question anything, but it's because they don't have those tools. And that is something that adults should be taking care of. Should be taking care, taking care of. So uh, yeah, I think uh, it puts a lot of pressure in them, and that we should control more, like or, or give them the tools to make the experience that is like unavoidable as healthy as possible, or at the least harmful that it can be. I don't know. Hmm. Um, when you think of uh, South America, Latin America, I, I think of the influence of the Catholic Church. That traditionally most people were influenced that. And Catholicism in the past has taught be like Mary, Marianismo. You should be pure. You should be virginal. No sex till you get married. If you go on a date when you're a teenager, you should have a chaperone. So we know your virtue is protected. How, how much of that kind of Catholic 
emphasis on being like Mary is still around? Our country is like um, something very, uh, our country is very small, but it has like some characteristics that are like make it special from the rest of Latin America. In our case, the church and state has been separated for a long, long time. And that shows in our culture. We are not very religious in general. And we still keep those values that I think that is that are part of our Western uh, society, our Western culture. Uh, but not as much. We, I mean, we still judge more girls if they uh, have more sex than boys, and if they have many boyfriends, and we don't judge boys as much. But we are changing, I think, uh, in that regard. But we are not very religious, and also. It, uh, uh, something that's like uh, a characteristic here locally is that we are very influenced uh, since we are a small country by Argentina. And Argentina has a, like a big, big show, show business uh, that is full of uh, like they are very sexist in Argentina. Women are like uh, very sexually exploited, right? For job, for showbiz and. We, as a culture in Uruguay, we pay a lot of attention to them. And I think that's a big influence in our culture, mm -hmm. for example, in a negative way. Like so in Argentina, sorry, yeah. no, to say just, just to say that although in Argentina, yes, the state and the church are one, are connected, are totally linked. Um, but we have all these sexist influence, of course, in yeah. TV shows mostly, and 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 in some okay mass media as well, in media. Um, in my case, for example, I'm a Christian. My uh, since since I was a little girl, I had to go to church. I had to because I was like forced to every Saturday and every Sunday because my mother seemed for the mass and I had to sing with her and uh, she is more like a kind of Catholic, I'm not, I'm more like a Christian, I believe I, I, I have some influences in that sense, but in terms of my relationships or uh, when I started dating and all that, I think I, I, I've been always pretty normal in a way. Um, I mean, I didn't wait to get married. I, I am living right now with my boyfriend, so there are some things that I don't, I, I, I didn't practice like the church tells you. But now that I'm uh, teaching in these different religion uh, high schools, I realized that, for example, in the Jewish community, this is something uh, that here in Uruguay is so uh, different. Um, they are like a, like so. They, it's like it's so hard to enter their circle and to understand them here. At least for me, that I'm a Christian, I'm like a normal. I would say normal in the in the sense of ordinary person. Um, I don't go to church. I don't. Okay, they do have their Shabbat and they practice uh, some kind of things and women use different, uh, sorry, wear different clothes some days, and boys wear the kippah, and there are some things that are different in, in, in that sense. Um, but as Astrid say, uh, said, uh, our country is not very religious, uh, in, in that aspect at least.
We have some communities, like every country, that has, okay, Jehovah Witnesses or um, some people, like, practicing their own beliefs. But, yeah. Um, and something I wanted to add when, when Astrid mentioned that, yes, we are, like, uh, we have, like, a different look towards women because they have more sex or they date more or they go out more often. There's something that... Uh, still happens here. I don't know if Astrid, I think you know, but uh, that I was like shocked because I thought it it used to happen in the past and now it continues. And it's this fact um, of girls going out at night and entering free if they are girls to to bars or to pubs or to dances or whatever. So if you're a woman and it's um, I don't know one a.m. or 2 a.m., you can enter for free just because you're a woman. Mm. I hate that. I've always hated that. I'm not going to say I never used it because I would be lying, but that's terrible. Terrible, and it still happens. What, what, what about quinceaneras? When, when you turn 15, do people, do girls still have quinceaneras? Yeah. But they are not, our parties are, are not like as religious as Mexicans, Mexican people, for example. They, like here, when we were younger, there used to be something called like cortejo, and boys stood out with roses and gave them to the girl and all that. That doesn't happen. Here it's like, oh, you're 15, let's throw a big party. It's not like, not as much as, wow, you're a woman now. Yeah. Yes, but not as much. It's like, we are used to having a big party, and that's it. That's what happens. Like, it's just a party with your family, a big party with a big dress, or no, or not, maybe. Um, but yeah. you have alcohol, you have your friends, you dance, but your family. It. Mm. I, I think in, in Mexico, Sometimes people yeah. spend like twenty thousand dollars on a quinceanera, like a wedding. You know, it's a big, yeah. it's a big yeah. deal. Yeah, it, it happens here. It happens here because it's very expensive. Uruguay, it's very expensive. It's a very expensive country. So any kind of party like that, a wedding, uh, a celebration like that kind, it's going to be expensive. Mm. Yeah, and also imagine that, like, uh, when you have a kid especially a girl, right? And you know that all other classmates uh, are going to have this big party when they're 15. Like, as a parent, you are going to do everything in your power to give her, like, the party that she wants. Or sometimes girls here take trips with other girls, uh, for example, right? So people sometimes, like, work their asses off, sorry, their butts off, or... Uh, to, for years, sorry. In the case of my parents, I was lucky enough to have like two working parents, right? But they had to save money for two years in order to afford like a nice party, but it wasn't like the, the biggest party ever, right? So yeah, we have like a lot of uh, pressure in a way to have that party and to work very hard. And sometimes like some people I've seen girls that uh, try to make some handcraft and sell it in order to save money for their party. Yeah. Uh, 
Yeah, that's so admirable. Is, is there yeah. anything s similar for boys turning 15, or boys don't get a big party? They no. don't. They, they don't. don't. Yes, they get thrown a party sometimes when they are 18, because they are men now. <laughs> and sometimes, but it's not as big or anything. But I've heard of quinceañeros. Some people I know, yeah. but it's... My brother celebrated a party. I mean, it wasn't that big. It was like in my in my uncle's house, <laughs> but but I mean, we bought a lot of things for him. He had many friends going, like forty friends more or less. So it was like a kind of a, a big party. But we're not used to that. I mean, not for boys. And I think it used to be more frequent in the past for girls as well. Nowadays, they prefer to travel somewhere or to go with friends to some place. And also going to they are like different from what I, from the ones that I went to like 10 years ago. When I used to go, girls were all in dresses and boys were like with a jean and a plaid t-shirt, right? or a play shirt, and that was fine. And boys didn't dance much. Like you had two or three male friends that danced, but then all they did was eat, right? <laughs> but now when you go, boys put on suits and they get like, that's true. for their appearance. And that's good because if we're going to ask girls to care for their appearance, I know we should ask boys too, right? Like start to level the bar a bit and they dance and they have a lot of fun they are i think our kids now are freer than we were even if it's 10 8 9 years ago mm. like i see a lot of changes mm. interesting um what about feminism do you think of yourself as a feminist and if so what does that mean yes <laughs> Yes, I consider myself a feminist. I think it's part of my identity of who I am. It's how I look at the world. And I think it means that women and men should have the same opportunities and rights, considering their differences. I consider myself an intersectional feminist. I try to learn more about how women in other communities experience uh, sexism and uh, like I'm Latina and I like I said we are very influenced by uh, American feminism for example in my case I don't know I'm always watching videos about feminism that are in English and sometimes some things don't apply to me as a Latina woman right and so it's interesting to see the effects of colonialism for us and I don't know I'm starting, I've been reading about uh, African women. Uh, I'm very in touch with the African-American experience for women uh, in the United States. Like, I'm trying to learn about that. And yeah, I, I don't know if I can add something else. Well, what are some specific examples of ways that feminism from the U.S. don't translate to you as a Latina? Um, like, uh, maybe some economic, or, uh, yes, like, 
some economical stuff, like about money, for example, that our realities are not the same. Um, and like I said, the, the, the effects of colonialism here, like we are still living those consequences as a, as a culture in general, right? So our history is not, it's not the same, right? And we experience like, it's, it's, everything is intertwined. So like, yeah, I don't know how to put it into words, basically. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. I have to think about how to give you like an exact example. I don't know. Okay, so, we'll come back. Maria, yeah, it's hard about all these things, yeah. As you say, especially in another language. Maria, are you a feminist? I'm not sure if I'm a feminist. I, I'm, I think I'm not sure. Um, I think I don't wear the label placed in my forehead saying I'm a feminist. Um, I feel proud of that, of trying to avoid wearing any type of label. Um, but as I said before, it's like, I feel like just try to do what is correct or what I feel is correct and try to make sure my, my thoughts and my actions and my ways of acting and ideas are linked somehow. And, um, it's like what I realize is that I'm constantly constructing and deconstructing my perspectives and my own being, uh, mostly towards some specific aspects like society or religion or politics sometimes. Um, but it's like that. I'm like constantly learning and also learning how to um, avoid that learning. I realized it's not good. <laughs> Um, but I don't know, I think I try to be in my actions, uh, try to challenge myself every day. Uh, for instance, regarding these aspects I told you before that I've suffered from bullying or whatever. I don't like using the word suffered from, but okay, that happened to me because that's true. Um, I've started modeling, for example, for a, a lingerie campaign. Um, yeah, <laughs> and of course that challenges me like enormously because it's like, okay, I'm showing myself as I am. I am accepting, embracing myself and I'm trying to show that to the world at the same time. I'm promoting beauty through a different perspective. So I think that in a way makes me a feminist. Um, <laughs> And then, for instance, um, I'm not sure, it's, it's like I, I'm not like a big feminist reader. I do like literature and I see myself through a feminist perspective when I talk about my preferences. The authors I like reading, I think that makes me in a way a feminist because I like, I choose like specific authors like, I don't know, Virginia Woolf or Margaret Atwood, and I like um, writers that are women and provide us with female, um, female main protagonists 
which in a way are, are empowered or are powerless, powerless, powerlessness. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, and show like the reality of different societies. For example, if I talk about Austin and I go back in time and I show society as it as it was, or if I go back to the future through Atwood and I see okay, women are no, are like ordinary women that get together and can make a change. So in that sense, I believe I am a feminist, but as I said, I'm not sure if I should call myself a feminist or not. I let others decide for me. You better in that sense. Please define it. What what did what does it mean to be a feminist? For me, it's oh, for me it's being uh, having like this sense of consciousness of <clears throat> what's right or or not. Considering the historical precedences that precedents that we have as women, and knowing that today we have things because other women in the past didn't have them and fought for that, so I believe that we have to make them proud in a way, and um, we have to take advantage of the things we have and try to make the world. I know this sounds like too, too uh, ideal, but try try to make the world a better place with the things we have, and and promote that as well. Uh, Astrid, what um, are yes, what, sorry. Yes, what are some of the books that have influenced you, feminist writers? Um, Maria Amphitz, like Virginia Woolf, Margaret Atwood. What about you? I read all of those authors, and. I read, I, I'm not going to pronounce it nicely, Chimamanda Gochi, I think. I, I don't want to mess up. She's but African, I read, right? Yeah, I read um, Half a Yellow Sun, um, and that changed my perspective. Like, I felt like we know so little about African history and how close we are as Latin American people to their experience. And it's like very recent in history and that touched me very profoundly lately. And now through TikTok, I, I've been learning, I, I'm like in touch with a lot of uh, readers uh, and I've been buying books in English that uh, I've come to the conclusion that like out of 10 books I've read, nine are by women. That's what I'm interested in and I can't help it. So I, I don't know. I, one of the books I read was Seriously, that it was by Madeleine Miller, uh, that is based on uh, Greek mythology, for example, and that is like a retelling, but it's interesting to see how those things have been going, like how you can relate to someone that, yes, in part is a fiction and character, but that's been like from thousands of years ago, years ago, and... Yeah, I don't know, like, maybe not a particular author. Uh, Shaker Rowling, before she became transphobic. <laughs> I used to love Harry Potter, and I think that shaped, uh, like, who I am as a kid. Maybe The Hunger Games, Susan Collins. Like, I, I was lucky enough to grow up in an age where we had, like, 
strong female characters in like very popular franchises, maybe. At least some cases, because we had others that were like the opposite, yeah. But I was lucky enough to find those nice examples. Did you see the Divergent series of films? No, I didn't. That's, I'm aware of them. That's another one with a strong female yeah. hero. And also the, I, the Star Wars, yeah. the new female hero, Ray. Is that her name? Wait, wait. <laughs> oh, <laughs> there's Ray. <laughs> I don't that. <laughs> oh, that's great. <laughs> um, so, are, are there women's studies? When you went to university, were there women's studies courses available? No. Nothing. <laughs> no. Um, we, I think that what shaped us was our literature teacher. Yes, uh, I agree. <laughs> she was the best teacher I've ever had. And through literature, we discussed all of these topics. And she chose very carefully the things that we worked with. Uh, and we learned to write essays. That is something that we don't do here in Uruguay. And to think like structurally and critically and I think she shaped a lot of myself. Uh, but we don't have that. Uh, as a law in our country for education, we're supposed to take into consideration like gender, to push like equality between genders, to take uh, diversity into consideration. That's in our law of education. But uh, it depends on the teacher. Like, there's no controlling, <laughs> nobody checks that that happens. So, and some parents don't like that. Uh, but I follow the law with which I agree. And that's the way that I approach my, my life and my work. So when you two are teaching English, do you assign novels by feminist authors? Um, not in my, not in my case, because the level of English we teach in state high school, it's, it's not enough for us to teach a novel, for instance. Maybe some poems, I've worked with Emily Dickinson, um, but in the private institute I, I work in, um, but mostly poetry, I think. A novel is, like, a little bit long <laughs> uh, to work with them. I'd love to. But anytime I can, I try to put something there, <laughs> at least a biography, work with something. But yeah, that, that's the thing. Uh, at the level, the general level here, it's not, the average level is not enough for them to reach. Beginners, they are just starting. So like, I try to put gender in everything. <laughs> that I work with, for example, today, again, we were working with people who made history, and like, uh, we talked about science, and they named a lot of people, politicians, a lot of people, but uh, what do they all have in common? Is that they are all men, like, they are not able to name, maybe they name Marie Curie, Frida Kahlo, 
maybe Marilyn Monroe, and that's it. Like, they don't know uh, more women. And so I tried, to, I asked them, and why do you think there is that uh, this is? And they come to very interesting uh, conclusions, and then at least the discussion, even if it's in Spanish, I find it like so nurturing. Uh, and you see that sometimes you see in their eyes that it's the first time that they ask themselves that. Like one of them today told me, like, sorry, teacher, I'm so sorry, I apologize because I can't think of a, a woman. He was like, maybe I'm offending you because I can't think of a woman, but I'm like, this is not your fault. This is something that we are like carrying, we have been carrying for forever, basically. So, in those kind of small things, I try to uh, bring up these this gender matters. In third grade, for example, they have a unit that is women's rights. So I talk about this difference between sex, gender, uh, gender norms, stereotypes, uh, sexism, like many things. And I try to teach them English through that. But yeah. Mm. <clears throat> um, there's also another, sorry, but to add to what Astrid was saying, there's also another thematic unit I, I used to work mostly these matters concerning uh, stereotypes and uh, female aspects, uh, which is fashion. Uh, in second grade, they have this unit called fashion, and I always try to work with that through, um, I don't know, through films. For instance, there's this film I've worked with that is called Dumpling, that talks about uh, beauty pageants. So all the, I mean, maybe you, it's not common for us here in Uruguay to have these contests for kids in which they have to go and show their beauty. Uh, but I know it's very popular uh, there. Um, but, um, this like uh, idea of promoting competence in terms of beauty since you are kids. Okay, all those aspects we've, we've discussed that in class or the fashion industry, why clothes are the size, uh, are made the sizes they are made for, or for instance, I don't know, uh, dangers of, of using too much uh, Photoshop or too much filters. All those things, I try to put them inside that thematic unit, and again, working it, uh, working with it as content through which I can teach English. But um, yes, or women and children's rights. If it comes up, okay, why is it that we have a specific unit called women and children's rights? Why isn't it human rights? Okay, and they say, okay, because women have been. Uh, forbidden with many aspects during all history, okay, they realize that, they know why we're working on that, and even boys that at the beginning, like, showed up to be, like, a little bit reluctant to the idea of, why women, why children, why never us, okay, no, now they know, and, and they also accept that, and want to learn about that. Hmm. In the Western world, Two waves, I would say, are happening in terms of adolescents, teenagers. One is increasing rates of anxiety and depression, especially among girls, and gender fluidity. More youth saying, I'm non-binary, I'm they, them, mm -hmm. not 
she, her. And do you find that in your way too, the more anxiety, gender questioning kind of waves? Yeah, I think that at least what I see is that they are, um, in a way, talking about gender and stuff, I feel like they are freer. When we were teenagers, there were these called like urban tribes, and you had to be you had to be a part of one, right? There was like the floors that they wore their hair in a certain way, and they used these type of clothes. Like they were like specific groups. Now that doesn't happen. You see, you look at your students, and yeah, they are like some things that are fashionable right now, but they are where where's like different clothes, their hair is different. You see, they are more diverse. And I think in that way, they are freer to look the way that they want to. That That's what I, I think. And girls cut their hair very short and some boys leave their hair long. And we see more things that they, I think that they feel freer to try out, to try things out and to be who they want to be at that moment. Um, but I also think that they, uh, generally, at least in where I work with, and that's what I see, that our teenagers are very lonely. And with the pandemic, they were, they lost like the direct touch with the institution. At least uh, I, I work with first, second, and third grade, or like it's high school. They are like from 12 to 15 or 16. And they are, like, we are a huge part of their routine. They go there very early in the morning, and then they have to go back in the afternoon. And losing that touch, they, I think they, I realized when they came back that they were longing for attention, that they were very, very angry and lonely. And I don't think that they are paying the attention that they are owed, uh, that they need. And... I think that they feel ignored and I don't know. I think that the parents are not as present as they should be. And I think that that brings a lot of uh, problems for teens. Is, is that because both parents are working? Hmm? So, is, sorry? Is that because both parents are <clears throat> working outside the home? Yeah, a bit of that is, and also like, I don't know, I think sometimes people have kids just because they think they need to have kids, but they don't take into consideration what it, what it takes to responsibly uh, take care of a human being, right? And help him grow or grow up and be there for that person to raise a kid. I don't think they, they know what, what it takes. And like I said, I see that people give their kids, like, I don't know, they take them to, they take their baby to a restaurant, right? With the, And they are with their friend. And the kid starts, starts like, making some sounds because he's a kid or she's a kid. And, like, what can you do? So they give them their phone, right? And it's like, here you have, do whatever you want with your phone. And that's an attitude that I see reflected in everything. And sometimes... For example, now after the pandemic, we have a lot of uh, issues with violence in my high school. There are a lot of fights 
in the classroom, students are more, more hostile, but I can clearly see that it's not like personal. Because when you talk, maybe they tell you like something very rude or they treat you horribly. But then when you talk to them, you realize that their, their anger is not, not towards you. <laughs> it's something else that comes from home. So I think that is like a general, more profound, deeper problem. Um, besides that, uh, in a way, I think that maybe in the past, not specifically in my through my adolescence, but earlier, uh, adolescents were somehow very influenced by their by their parents or their their parents' expectations. They feel that they felt that pressure. Now I think that pressure has been moved towards societal pressure. It's like society is the one pushing them constantly to do this, do that, post this, post that, speak like this, move like that, wear this, wear that. Um, at least that's what I see in my students. Um, for instance, I have two students, two girls in one class that uh, that consider themselves non-binary students and it's so hard for me I know this is totally new at least here it's very new and it's so hard for me to understand their, their perspectives but as far as I can see it's like they are non-binary and they okay they don't identify themselves with nothing at all they don't want to do nothing at all they were black both of them were black uh, from <laughs> from head to toe, and they are like with the, with a short haircut. They are like very alike. They are friends, of course. Um, and it's like, uh, for instance, if I see some kind of um, attitude towards them in a different way from their own classmates, it's like they. It's not like they bully them, but they don't understand them. I have another student that uh, he he's homosexual and he loves showing and sharing and saying he's homosexual. He feels so proud of himself. And that attitude towards him doesn't exist, for instance. It's like uh, rules are changing now. If we felt this kind of violence towards homosexual people earlier, Okay, that's changed because that's not new nowadays. What is new is the non-binary uh, choice or other choices. So that's something I'm like, I've been paying attention to and I've, I've experienced that in class. Um, for instance, uh, talking, going back to adolescence and pressure, um, when, I, when I went through my adolescence, I, I lived like a very lonely adolescence, like Astrid was saying, um, because I, I just had to take care of my brother as if I was his mom, and my mom left me totally aside. So uh, I had to do everything, I had to study, and I worked in a private English institute to pay for my photocopies, and uh, I had to take care of my brother and clean the house and do everything myself. And I really felt pretty lonely. I never knew what I was, what, what I should have done at that time, or what I, what I was doing was right or not. So 
Yes, I see that some students, most of my students, feel the same way I felt. Mm. Um, they they go home and they are alone, or they have to take care of of their of their brothers or sisters. Um, I had many students during this first year of pandemic um, situation, in which they had to connect through Zoom, and they couldn't because their mother or their father wasn't home and they had to take care of their siblings, so they couldn't connect. And I've seen that nowadays, yes. But I feel like there's something different going on in adolescence now. It's like they know, somehow they are like more aware of, of this historical precedent we've been mentioning. And um, especially women, they feel like they are freer, you know, they are freer in a way, and they know they have to take advantage of that. That's something I see. They know mm. that they are powerful, mm. and they try to show it and prove they are. At least in class, they love doing that. Whenever mm. they can show off, because just because of the fact they are women, they do it, it makes me feel very, very proud of them. Ah. I, wish I, I wish I could have done that before. Um. The thing is that, Wait, you wait. were raised 